Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9. Revelation 1, we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. And as you turn there, uh, let me just set the passage in its context, looking at the first eight verses. Uh, In the first three verses of Revelation, which we looked at two weeks ago, uh, this is labeled the prologue in the ESV. We see that God gave Jesus a disclosure, a description of past, present, and future events, but from God's heavenly perspective, an uncovering, if you will, not a set of predictions about the end times, but a look into God's heavenly reality. God gave this to Jesus, who then gave it through an angel to this man, John. And John writes an account of this vision, which is then sent to seven actual churches in Asia Minor. In verse 3, we see that the one who hears this revelation and who keeps it somehow is blessed, edified as they continue to walk with Christ amidst difficulty. In the next section, verses 4 through 8, we see that The Revelation, the book that is, is framed as a letter. And it's sent from this human being, John, to seven actual communities. This means that Revelation is not abstract theology, but rather it is pastoral literature that was originally meant to encourage and edify real flesh and blood believers in the first century. I think that's enough by way of context. Let us read the text for this morning, starting at verse 9. And I invite you, friends, as you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word. I, John... Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You may be seated. Now, friends, in just a moment, uh, we'll walk through the passage, pulling out its meaning in greater detail, but I want to state at the outset that this passage serves to encourage and reorient. Encourage and reorient. We see in this passage that Jesus Christ has us in the very palm of his hand. Encourage. Encourage. And we also see that our purpose as the church is to illuminate Christ's glory for all the world to see. Reorient. Reorient. So these are the two ideas that we're going to explore in greater detail as we move through the text. But before we go any further, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Lord, your word is so rich, so full, so capacious, Lord. We could spend an eternity reflecting on its contents. But this morning, help us to reflect on you. May this passage of Scripture direct us to you, Jesus, our comforter, our encourager, our King, our Lord. Make us more like you as we journey through this text together. Give us understanding of what truly matters in this passage. And help us to know how to be your hands and feet and how to shine as lights in the world, shedding light on you for all the world to see. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, let's just dive right in to the text. You will need Bibles this morning, uh, so we'll be in Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9, and we're going to walk through it verse by verse. So this section closes chapter 1, and after this, we'll get an exciting seven weeks, seven letters to these churches that are mentioned And often when you hear Revelation preached nowadays, you hear chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, but it's important to see those chapters in the context of the whole book. And so this will be the final kind of introductory section in chapter 1 before we get to those seven letters. But we learn some important information here, and we feel the encouraging hand of Jesus, especially at the end of this text. So looking at verse 9... We get some more information about the situation behind Revelation. Here it says, I, John, again the author, the human sender of this document, I, John, your brother and sharer in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance in Jesus. Let's stop there. So we see that John is the one sending this document for the edification of these seven communities. 
And I've said that John is probably a kind of pastoral supervisor, a a, a proto-bishop, if you will, of these seven communities, but he speaks about himself as their equal. I am your brother and sharer. They're, They're on the same level. And he's a sharer in primarily three things, which I'd like to unpack further. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance. So what John and these seven communities have in common, primarily, are these three marks, these three experiences. And first we have the tribulation. Now later in the book of Revelation, we'll see mention of the tribulation, this seemingly apocalyptic period of kingdoms warring against kingdoms, a kind of end times tribulation. But, but here, John is referring to the difficulties that they face on account of the Word of God in the first century Roman Empire. Now, I'll talk about this more at the end of this verse, but John had been exiled to Patmos. It was a legal decision On account of preaching about Jesus, he was punished for sharing the gospel. And so Christians at this time, likely living under the reign of Nero, uh, and perhaps Diocletian later on, and these Roman emperors who were hostile to this new faith, you think of Vespasian as well, tribulation, difficulty, Tough circumstances, hostility, was something that Christians had in common at this time. So even if there were differences in authority, John can say that we are sharers in that experience. By virtue of their connection with Jesus, they faced tribulation. But also, they were part of the same kingdom. Now, the Roman Empire claimed that it was an eternal kingdom that it was the last in this line of earthly kingdoms, the one that would last forever. But even in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of worshiping this crucified king, Christians know that they are part of the true eternal kingdom. So what John and these communities have in common is tribulation, a kingdom reigning with Christ in heaven, and lastly, endurance. Of course, at this time, they are waiting, longing for the world to come. The kingdom that Christ would visibly bring when he would subject all the kings of the earth to his reign. And so Christians here, we see, are defined by these three marks. And I think these are marks that we can relate to today. As Christians, we have in common our experience of tribulation in this world. And we wait with endurance for this new world to come. But friends, we can take heart in the fact that even though we're looking to the future, we currently make up a kingdom reigning with Christ in heaven. So moving on, John says that I was on the island which is called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now it seems to be, based on the tense here, 
that when John is writing Revelation, he's thinking back to when he was on the island, receiving the vision. So it seems that he received the vision on Patmos, and then his time of exile ended. And he was able to recall what he'd seen and write it down and send it to the churches. Now, it's hard to imagine John writing Revelation on the island. It's possible, but it's hard to see how he would have successfully sent the document to all these seven churches. Either way, it doesn't really matter. What matters here is that he was on the island because of, or on account of, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Friends, there's ample evidence, extra-biblical evidence, that one could face legal punishment for preaching the gospel at this time, especially in this area. Now, there was an offense that was basically known as spreading a, a superstition. And so if you would spread a superstition and lead others to believe these outlandish ideas, you could be punished for it in the Roman Empire. And so the punishment, it, it depends on your citizenship and status, things like that. But one of the punishments would be exile to a place where you couldn't do any further damage. So John, on the mainland in Asia Minor, has been preaching about Jesus, this crucified king. He spread, it, spread the superstition in the eyes of the Romans. And so to curb the influence of this gospel, they exile him to Patmos, this island off the coast of Miletus. But what's so ironic, friends, is that it's on that island that John receives this vision which he then transposes into an account to be sent to seven churches. And friends, we have it today. So much for curbing his influence, right? Well, he says in verse 10 that I was in the Spirit. I was in a trance. This is the language of prophecy, a prophetic experience. God was speaking to him. And it was on the Lord's day. Now, this is too early to say that Sunday was the day on which all Christians worshipped. It's, it's too early. But it seems that it at least was the case for these believers in Asia Minor. And so as these communities in these seven churches were worshipping God, worshipping Jesus in their respective locations, John, their shepherd, their pastor, was worshipping Christ on Patmos. And it says, I heard behind me a great voice like a trumpet. Now, the two texts that you heard read by Sue this morning are two of many, many texts in the Old Testament that speak of this type of experience. Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah even, figures who are being confronted with the Word of God and they're grasping for language to describe this experience. And you can think of Exodus when God appears to Moses on the mountain in the language of the trumpet. The trumpet is also featured in Joshua, the trumpet calling them into battle against the Canaanites. There's all this language about the trumpet being associated with God's appearance, with God's reign, His victory. 
And so immediately, we're transported into these Old Testament texts. I heard behind me a great voice, and the voice said things to John, verse 11. It said, that which you see, whatever you see, you must write down, record it in a book or a scroll, and send it, the final product, to seven assemblies of believers. So take what you are experiencing in this vision, this dream-like state, and somehow, with my guidance, somehow transpose it into a, a literary account, a document, that you can then send to these seven churches. And here we see those churches specified geographically, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And if you turn to chapters 2 and 3, you'll see that these are precisely the seven churches to which seven letters are addressed right after. And so this section serves to preface the next important section in Revelation. So John is being commanded not to hoard this vision for himself, but to share it with these communities for their edification. And it says in verse 12, And I turned to see the voice. A figure of speech, of course, you don't see voices, you see speakers. So I turned to see the one who was speaking to me, and upon turning, this is what he saw. Now again, remember, friends, this is, this is a vision of heavenly reality. We can, of course, picture this literally, but the point is to unpack its symbolism. What is the literature telling us about Jesus, telling us about John? And so I will unpack these images But what he saw was seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, so this language to me suggests a ring, a circle of menorah-like golden lampstands, which are so common in passages about the tabernacle and the temple. This is Israelite temple language, furniture. A ring of lampstands, And in the middle of that ring, in the center, was one like a son of man, or the son of man. Now that's a hyperlink that sends us right right to Daniel. And we think about this heavenly Messiah, son of man, king-like figure, descending with the clouds from heaven to finally free the people from all these evil empires, and to bring about God's kingdom. I saw the Son of Man in the midst, the middle of this ring of golden lampstands, and he was robed. He had a robe that was stretching to his feet. That's what it says. And that adjective, to the feet, it's really only used in contexts that speak about priestly garments in the Old Testament. The Son of Man was in the midst of this temple furniture, these lampstands, and he was wearing a priestly robe. And around his chest, not his waist, but his chest, was a golden sash. Again, you can look at 
many Old Testament texts. I don't have time to look through all of them, but Daniel, Ezekiel. There's other texts in Jewish tradition that are not in our Bible, but that speak about this golden sash being around this high priest, serving God, representing the people in the temple. Jesus is on paradigm with high priests throughout Israel's history. Verse 14, it says that his head, I'm just going to translate this literally, this will sound confusing, his head and his hair was white like white wool, like snow. So This ought to be encouraging to anyone whose hair is now pure white because the Son of Man had hair that was white. But no, friends, this is a connection to Daniel and the Ancient of Days who is seated upon a throne. We've heard these texts read, and even today we heard the text read that one was seated on a throne with hair that was white as wool, white as snow. And there's language in Isaiah about our sins being red like crimson, but being purified and washed white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire, continuing these connections with these many passages, these heavenly visions in the Old Testament, connecting the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, with the Ancient of Days. Very significant for a Jewish person to do in the first century. Moving on, verse 15, it says, His feet were like burnished bronze, which had been purified in a furnace. We just heard this in the text read for this morning. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. Water, of course, in the Hebrew Scriptures is a symbol of judgment. You can think of the flood in Genesis. You can think of the Red Sea engulfing the Egyptians. But it's also a symbol of life. The water from the rock in the wilderness. The water, the living water. We think of Jesus and the woman at the well, etc. All of this language is meant to tell us that this figure that John is seeing in the midst of these lampstands is somehow one with the Ancient of Days that Daniel had seen in his visions. And it says in verse 16 that he had, picture this, he had in his right hand, and that is the hand of power, of regal authority, of leadership and strength, He had in or on his hand seven stars. I don't know how we're to think of this. Again, it's it's the symbolism that matters, but maybe the image is almost tattooed on the hand, or he's holding them and they're bright. It's, It's hard to know. John is, again, grasping for language to describe what he saw. But stars in the ancient world that were used to predict one's future, the course of one's life. And often by charting the position of the stars, one thought that you could figure out what would happen. But stars are also connected with angels in the Old Testament. And Daniel talks about the righteous Israelites shining like stars in the sky. So there's all this imagery attached to stars. And it says, from his mouth, so stars in the right hand, and from his mouth there came a sharp two-edged sword. 
the Roman short sword, it seems, that was used in battle. And a sword, of course, brings judgment upon enemies, but also delivers the weak and the oppressed from the hand of evil empires. And coming from the mouth, it suggests that the words, the words of this figure bring judgment and deliverance. They cut. And lastly, it says that his face or his appearance was shining like the sun in full strength. Imagine witnessing this, trying to write down uh, what it looks like. So verse 17, when John saw this, understandably, he says, I fell to his feet as one dead. And I would encourage you to uh, read through Ezekiel because it's, it's, it's funny to, to read chapter after chapter, Ezekiel encounters the glory of God and he says, I fell, I fell, I fell, I fell, like a refrain in the book. Daniel, I fell at his feet. Think about the transfiguration in the Gospels. Matthew 17, when this inner circle of disciples goes up and sees the glory of Jesus transfigured before them, this voice from a cloud, and they fell. They fell at his feet. And what does the Son of Man do? Does he chastise them? Does he come down with this thunderous voice from a cloud? says, he placed his right hand upon me. Now, that's not striking, punishing John. It's taking his right hand of power and authority and gently placing it on John. It's exactly what Jesus does to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says the same thing here, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? I am. Now, whenever you see I am in the scriptures, friends, you pay attention. I am statements feature throughout the book of Revelation. But I would read John's gospel if I were you and look at the I am statements there. I am the first and the last. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, begins to identify himself in certain ways, but all of these identifications are meant to bring comfort to the terrified John. And I would say, comfort to us. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive. Again, forever and ever and ever. Now, there is some rich theology. You'd call it Christology here. Many doctrines about the nature of Christ derive from this verse. But the point of these Christological statements is to bring comfort to an actual person. Friends, theology, talk of God, is always meant to edify the souls of his people. 
That's what's going on here. And you can't understand theology if you're not being edified by the gospel that is inherent in it. Do not fear. He's saying this to John, but he's also saying this to the seven churches who would receive this document. He says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. I'm in control. He's got the stars in his hand. He's got the keys to death and Hades. And somehow, he can still use those hands to comfort us. It shows us that these images aren't to be taken literally. There's symbolism here that we need to unpack. But if anyone can do all these things with his hands, it's Christ. Verse 19. Therefore, on the basis of all of this, you must write everything you see, namely that which is and that which is going to be after these things, So the revelation, the disclosure that you see, John, is a depiction of, I would say, past, present, and future from God's perspective. And finally, in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven lampstands of gold is this. Luckily here, Jesus explains for us the meaning of these images. And he says, the seven stars, which again picture in his right hand, the hand of this regal figure in heaven, who is impossible to look directly at. The seven stars are angeloi of the seven churches. I'm going to just leave it at that, and I'll unpack it in a moment. He goes on to say that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, angeloi. There's a lot of literature written trying to answer the question, who are these angeloi? And you can probably deduce from my pronunciation that many translate this angels. Um, But the word in Greek can refer, of course, to spiritual beings, Angels, we would call them. But it's also the normal word to refer to human messengers, representatives, ambassadors. And in chapters 2 and 3, we'll read, To the angelos of the church in Ephesus, write this. To the angelos of the church in Smyrna, write this, etc., etc. Now, there are some scholars, many of whom are also pastors, (laughs) who think that the angeloi here are the leaders of the seven churches. The human representatives between Jesus and these communities who are responsible for the spiritual welfare of these communities. Rather than a kind of guardian angel to whom John somehow sends mail, not sure how that would work, Real human beings who have been called by God to lead these communities in the likeness of Christ. Now friends, that makes better sense of the letters than seven angels. 
But even if you interpret this as angels, you can think of a figure who is responsible for the spiritual welfare of a community. And the Son of Man says, I have all seven of those figures in the very palm of my hand. My right hand of power. I have their spiritual welfare entirely under my control, my safekeeping. Do not fear. I have you in the palm of my hand. The seven lampstands forming a ring are the seven assemblies that are named the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, lampstands are designed to hold lamps, lights high up, so that their light would illuminate a space. And the lampstands in the temple illuminated this holy structure so that the priest, the high priest especially, could serve God and represent the people. The seven churches are these seven lampstands which illuminate the space in the middle. And friends, who is standing in the middle? Our purpose is to shed light on the glory of Jesus so he can do his priestly work and so all the world can see it. This passage is meant to encourage us by telling us that Jesus has us in the palm of his hand, one. But it's also meant to reorient us, which I think is so fitting in this annual meeting week, to reorient us by reminding us of our true purpose, which, which is to illuminate Christ's glory for all to see. How encouraging would this have been to read in the first century in Asia Minor? I want you to imagine receiving this text as a Christian in one of those cities facing persecution, martyrdom, and threats around every corner. Friends, Jesus, whose voice is like a trumpet, like the roar of many waters. Jesus, whose face is like the sun, and from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus, the same Jesus, transfigured before us in full glory, he takes his hand and he places it on us gently and says, do not fear, I am. He says, do not fear public arrest. Do not fear the floggings and the whippings. Do not fear the threat of death. I am everything you need. And like I said before, just as he does at the Mount of Transfiguration, so he does here in his heavenly glory. He stoops down. He touches us. And he encourages our hearts with his love. In this text, we see that somehow Jesus is both terrifying and comforting. 
that he's both awe-inspiring and soothing. I encourage you this morning to let Jesus do both. Let him terrify and inspire awe in you. As the Son of Man, the first and the last, the ruler of all creation. But let him comfort and soothe you too. As healer, friend, as brother, forever and ever. Friends, Jesus cares deeply, oh, so deeply about you. He sees the turbulence all around you, the chaos swirling around you, and he takes pains to remind you again and again and again, I have you in the palm of my hand. Let Jesus hold you there this morning for as long as it takes for you to really believe him be encouraged then and be reoriented and let us together shine as lampstands for Christ let's pray Lord we are so glad that you never stop speaking to us. Lord, your word is balm for our soul, but it's also a wake-up call, a trumpet behind us that jolts us into action, into expectant, urgent action as we await your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Please fill us with a proper appreciation, reverence for your majesty, Jesus. But help us to hold that somehow with a view toward your love, your companionship, your affection. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would encourage us and orient us as we try to live in to our God-given task, which is to illuminate your glory for all the world. Thank you, Jesus, and be glorified through our worship of you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.